Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. While Oklahoma and most of America has been in some form of lockdown over the past two months, Italy implemented one of the strictest versions in the world and did it earlier than most nations. That country has now begun the process of easing restrictions, but we spoke with OSU art history alumna Laura Webb back on April 24th when those restrictions were still in place. She's in Italy working toward a PhD from Stanford. In March, Laura published a letter in the Oklahoman urging her home state to shut down to save lives, just as Italy did. We spoke about that, how her experience there compares to what we are seeing in Oklahoma, and why her research area makes some people uncomfortable. I know Italy got a lot of headlines a while back about just how bad things were, and I know that they've been on lockdown. What are things like right now? Today's April 24th. What are things like there now? Well, um, it's pretty quiet here now, but I am actually in Rome and not in the north of Italy where everything was really, really bad. So it's actually been quite calm here the entire time. We didn't get hit as badly by the entire pandemic as as Lombardy did, for example. Although people are starting to try to, to go out a little bit more. Like my street this week was pretty popping. Um, there are a couple people outside. <laughs> but uh, I went out on yesterday. What is today? I went out on Thursday and it was very quiet. There was nobody out. And you all have been in a situation where you have to have a note to leave the house right? Yeah, so we have to have a little like auto declaration for where we're going, but it's a, nobody's actually asked me for mine yet. So technically you're supposed to have it with you at all times and you're supposed to fill out sort of like where you reside, um, where you're going, which is like the only sort of acceptable answers are like the grocery store, the doctor, and then I think there's an option for exercise so if you're just kind of going on a walk which is still a little bit not allowed and then you have to have that and fill it out and they like sort of the carabinieri will take it from you but like i said i've never i haven't been asked because if it's apparent that you're going to the grocery store they just kind of like leave you alone and don't sort of like ask for it but my my friend did get stopped the other day and they did ask her for it so two weeks ago i went to the grocery store on a saturday and they had set up sort of blockades on the street um so i live right by a metro station and the carabinieri had stopped every car that was going by and then i think like everybody who was going into the metro station just to make sure that they were going where they said they were going, or at least sort of like had some sort of accountability. It's a little bit weird because we've never, I've personally never been in a situation where I had to have sort of like a permission slip to go outside. I don't really mind it and I understand why they're doing it. I don't know that they'll ever use the paper trail that they have, but I guess they could. Um, but I think from a sort of individual level, it like sort of stops you from just kind of going out willy nilly because you have to think like, do I really need to go to the grocery store today? What will happen? Um, I'm a little concerned if I do get stopped because I have made, they've changed the form. The first week they changed it like five times and then it's changed like a few times since then. And I only have the first one because I printed it out on work before work before we, <laughs> we were like officially shut down. So I don't really know what will happen um, if I do get stopped because I only have like the really, really, really old one. But they supposedly have them with them. <laughs> I have no idea. 
So like, there's like counterfeit hall passes. Yeah, well, and also like, apparently if you don't have a printer, you're supposed to just like write the whole thing out by hand. So, I mean, none of it is like official. It's all just sort of like... <laughs> it sounds like it's as much them establishing how serious this is as anything, right? It's to make you stop and think that's how seriously you need to take this because we might stop you and ask you to see this. Yeah, I think so. And then just the idea that like somebody could ask you where you're going, I think makes you sort of like think about it a lot more. There were blockades on the street um, and there still are. So I think if I were to go out of town in a car, I would be stopped to ask for my totally legitimate permission slip, which I've written by hand. And what led to our conversation was your opinion piece mm. in the Oklahoman. How did that come about? Well, so it's been a couple of weeks now, um, but basically I was feeling very frustrated and unable to do anything from where I was because I'm obviously stuck in Italy and my family is in Oklahoma. And so I can't do anything for them they can't do anything for me but I felt like I had a sort of valuable perspective to share being in a country that's entirely shut down even though the town that I'm currently or the city that I'm currently in isn't super affected by the pandemic and I felt like it would be important to share how I've been affected by it and also how important it is for everybody to sort of like be on lockdown together because I think what's valuable with what Italy did is that we're all just stuck you know we don't have an option nobody can move around I can't go to Milan somebody from Milan can't come here um, and that's been very effective at stopping the spread of the virus and flattening the curve even though the Lombardy outbreak was huge and I think what's frustrating or disappointing about how the United States and how Oklahoma has been handling it is to just sort of shut down little localized centers. And of course, that's not how disease spread works. Like you don't know you have it until you have a lot of it. Perhaps they didn't communicate it in the article as well as I would now at a number of weeks later, but it's not scary if everything is shut down. Like, I'm not afraid. I'm not like, I don't feel afraid of being stuck in my house for a month and a half now. Like, it's okay. We'll be okay. And this is sort of how one should stop it. The state is still not shut down. So <laughs> I guess, what can you do? For some context here, I know your mm -hmm. mother is a pediatrician. Yeah. Um, so, so she's out there seeing sick people. That's got to be scary for you to know your mother is out there doing that. What is that like? And you're half a world away. Well, exactly. And I think that's part of the reason that I wrote that piece, because all I can do is sort of like shout from across the ocean, like, please, like, protect my mother. I can't, like, roll her up in a ball. And I couldn't, like, nobody could go visit anybody in the hospital. But, like, I really, really couldn't because I literally can't leave. She's been pretty calm about it. I mean, you've met her, so she's pretty like, go with the flow and also like, rah, we're gonna get this done. So she's been pretty upbeat. Uh, she said she was 
trying to learn telemedicine, so I'm not sure how that's going, because uh, with children, I'm not really sure how much information you can, can glean um, from the screen, but yeah, uh, and I think they're still actually open, so I think they're still seeing a few patients sort of like in person if, if need be. Just so I know, your father is not a medical health professional? No, he's not. He is an engineer who actually retired when I was quite young to be a stay-at-home dad. So, oh, wow. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. As far as the way this has spread throughout the world, mm. Italy, I know, was hit very hard, and they were obviously hit earlier than us. The peak over there was way earlier than us. So you were kind of ahead of us in time. What do things feel like now? You've talked about being shut down for over a month, but does it feel like you're coming to the end of this? Yes and no. I feel like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel for getting out of my apartment. We're supposed to be able to leave sort of May 5th, but we all expect that there will still be a lot of restrictions. So how people will actually go back to work, what will actually happen. We don't know what that will look like yet. And then also, uh, you know, I live in Italy, like one of the best things to do here is eat. Restaurants are not opening May 5th. They're not opening until May 18th. And that will only be for sort of takeaway or you're not gonna be able to go just sit in a restaurant, which is most of what I do in my free time that's going to be very different and we don't know when that's going to be back to normal. It feels like we're over maybe the worst sort of like crisis part of it, like the part that feels the most sort of like in your face and oh my gosh, you really have to stay inside, you really have to wash your hands and really have to, you should still wash your hands after May 5th, obviously, but yeah, like yeah. it seems like we're over this sort of like crisis point. Like there's not going to be however many thousands of deaths a day, hopefully. But in order to prevent that from coming back, we're going to have to sort of come out slowly and figure out how to, how to do that. The cases have been dropping off day by day, but we still have more and more cases every single day. And I think the net sort of positive has been in the negative for a few days in a row now, which is, fantastic, but there are still new cases out there. So if I were going to put a time on it, I feel like we're somehow like a third of the way through. Wow. And then the other two thirds are going to be sort of long and slow and maybe more frustrating because it's almost back to normal, but not quite. Right. You, you just said two things that I think are um, really important for people here to keep in mind. One, mm -hmm. uh, your last point. I think a lot of people are sort of thinking whenever this lockdown situation ends, everything is just back to normal, back to the way it was, say, on January 1st. And I agree with you. No, it's not. Um, just because you're not having so many people die every day doesn't mean COVID-19 is gone. Mm -mm. And we don't want to wind up right where we are or in a worse situation, which is what happened with the Spanish flu. Let's avoid that. Secondly, when you're talking about restaurants opening, um, obviously that's a different situation than here, because here you have takeout, you have drive-through, 
you can't go eat in a restaurant, but we can go get food from restaurants. You can't even do that. If yeah. I were, if, if I were a single man, um, I don't know what I'd be eating because my cooking is virtually non-existent. Thankfully, I am a pretty good cook, thanks to my dad. But yeah, I literally have not eaten anything that has not come from my kitchen for two months now. Uh And it's really getting old. Um, There is some delivery here but it's not as big of a thing. So it's sort of less available. Um, like there's, I mean, there's Uber Eats, etc. but nobody really uses it. And sort of like the best restaurants, you know, the sort of things you romantically think of when you think of Italy as like a mom and pop that just kind of like have a, a restaurant that they've had forever. And it's like a tiny little hole in the wall place. Obviously they don't have delivery. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Like, you can't even pay with a credit card in those particular places. So, like, it's just, it's not the same. But, yes, I would like to eat something other than things that I've made. And I'm very jealous of your takeout situation. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys can also get in your car and just kind of, like, drive around, which is really nice. And, like, go on walks other places. Like, I can't, I literally am in my apartment. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's like... It's like the zombie apocalypse where you are. Yeah, it is a little bit. Um, Yeah, because when you go out, there's just like nobody. Uh, And I live about five minutes from the forum. So it's a really touristy area usually. And so there's usually, you know, tons and tons of people in the street and a lot of things going on and everything's open. And there are people like from restaurants, like calling you inside, et cetera, et cetera. And now you go out, nothing. It's like empty. It's kind of weird. So you are in Italy because you're getting a PhD from Stanford in art and art history. What was it you studied here at OSU? I actually, I majored in art history at OSU as well. And then I also have a master's in art history from Tufts, uh, which is near Boston. And then, yes, I am getting a PhD in art history. Yes. So you are in Rome studying art history. You're there doing research right? Which requires you to go out and be in archives and things? Uh, I'm here on a fellowship to finish up sort of research for my dissertation. So my fellowship is sort of like through a U.S. foundation and then they partner with a library here. So I normally work with, I normally work in in an art history library, which is obviously closed. And then when I'm not working in that library, I'll be working in sort of various libraries throughout the city or, you know, going to an archive or Mm -hmm. going to a museum or going to a church or going to some other sort of architectural site. And also my plan for this year was to travel around Europe a little bit more and to see the other objects in other cities that um, would be helpful to my dissertation. but that is on hold um, because I don't know <laughs> when I can go anywhere. I think maybe after the restrictions are lifted here, I'll have a better idea of how I can travel around Italy. For instance, I specialize in Byzantine art and I need to go to Istanbul and I don't know when that's gonna happen. Mm. When you can't leave the house, that certainly affects your research. Are, are you able to do anything productive now? 
yeah, well, actually I've been very, I've been pretty productive. Um, so I think being a PhD student uh, uniquely prepares you for a lockdown situation because all I do almost every day anyway is sit in a library and read by myself and mm -hmm. think about things by myself. So this has not drastically impacted my schedule of work, but I am thankful that we live in 2020 and <laughs> that I have a lot of PDFs saved on my computer. Um, so I sort of scanned a whole bunch of stuff before we went into lockdown. Um, so I've been able to do some work. Um, but then also, I'm sure anybody who's ever worked on a big project or even just like our research paper knows at some point you just need to write mm -hmm. like you need to stop reading things and you just need to write um, so this has been actually really helpful for forcing me to just sit down and figure out what it is that I already know you know you don't have to go anywhere like I don't have to look <laughs> reasonably presentable to go sit in a library um, <laughs> Right. So it's actually, you know, it's not been so bad. And then I have a, I have a really good support system that I met through uh, the library and they're fantastic and we meet every, every day, like digitally. So we can just like check in and feel like we're not completely just sitting in our rooms, mm -hmm. tapping away on a laptop. I have been here since November 2018. Oh, wow. And I'm supposed to leave next, like this coming November. So November 2020. Again, I am not sure if that will get pushed back or, you know, as you were saying with the Spanish, there was a second wave. So if there's a second wave, would that mean that I need to come back earlier so that I am not stuck here for, you know, six extra months? So yeah, that's all kind of up in the air now too. I was afraid you were missing out on the majority of your time there, but no, because you're there two years total. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so luckily I've had, you know, I've had some time to enjoy and now I just am aware of all the things that I'm missing, so. So your research topic is uh, to me very interesting and unique. Would you, would you like to explain that? Uh, yeah, so I, <laughs> I am writing a dissertation on Byzantine eunuchs from sort of like the 9th through 12th-ish centuries, ending in 1204 with the Fourth Crusade. And I am interested as an art historian in their artistic patronage, how they're represented, and then how they themselves sort of function as aesthetic or artistic there's sort of works of art within the court and the court ceremony and i suppose i should back up and explain that there were a lot of eunuchs um, in the court of constantinople and they served a very important bureaucratic function and perhaps i need to define what a eunuch is for yeah it's, it's, it's going to get very game of thrones here for a minute Oh yeah, no, it is very Game of Thrones. Um, so within the court of Constantinople, there were a lot of eunuch courtiers and these men would be castrated as very young boys, probably by their parents or sort of like an uncle or an older 
figure in their life um, in order to give them sort of greater social mobility. Eunuchs are ineligible for the throne. And so they were highly valued by the Byzantine emperors who were sort of constantly getting dethroned and needed sort of people who could be relied on. And so there is sort of like important political function within the court. But I am interested in them because they also would look quite different. So we (laughs) in the 21st century don't castrate children anymore. Thank goodness, obviously. Mm. Um, It's not a kind, we don't necessarily, I mean, we don't consider it a kind thing to do. But apparently when you would castrate a child before puberty, they they look very, very different. They're sort of like tall. Um, They obviously don't grow facial hair. Uh, There's something sort of like obviously androgynous about them, which makes them stick out. And of course, in the Byzantine world, they would look very much like angels who are also asexual and sort of angels don't have gender because they're not people. Mm -hmm. They're just sort of creating beings. Um, So there's something sort of angelic about a eunuch. um, And I'm really interested in the sort of visual effect of that around an emperor. Because in the Byzantine world, the emperor would be considered sort of Christ's representative on earth and also a sort of mirror image of Christ. So we need to imagine the sort of court of heaven with Christ around, with, like, with angels around, around him, sort of like reflected in the earthly world with the emperor, with all of his sort of like eunuchs around him. I knew a little bit about eunuchs and, and I think I remember learning about, um, they had very unique voices, which makes sense, right? Yeah, so So the most famous sort of eunuchs for us today are probably the castrati of Italy, uh, who are the sort of operatic stars par excellence of like the 18th and 19th centuries. And that late? Oh, yeah. 18th and 19th century. The last castrato died in 1920 or something. That's, that's like just after the Spanish flu. That's how recently yeah. we're talking about. Correct, yeah. Wow. So the castrati are really interesting because they were raised um, from boyhood to be sort of these literally singing machines. And they, the reason that the castrati voice is so interesting to people is it, it can't be recreated mm-hmm. um, because you would essentially have the rib cage and lungs of a of a male but the voice box of a boy and so apparently their voice was very particular and it's been compared to angels uh but the byzantines also had eunuch singers as well so it's sort of like a long tradition of this like angelic voice that we have um and the castrati also were the last castrato uh, was a Vatican singer. So there's this sort of like long standing interrelationship between this sort of like angelic aesthetic and castrated men. Yeah, it's as a, as a man and a parent, uh, and a parent of a, uh, I have a son, all of that is just very heavy. There's a lot, there's a lot there. I had never thought about upward mobility the way you're talking <laughs> about it. Um, I suppose in their world, they were doing a favor to 
yeah. to those boys. I get this reaction a lot. Like some people get really, really sad hearing about my, my dissertation. And <laughs> I, I guess I'm sort of like immune to it now because it's because I'm so sort of like in the sources. We don't have any writings from Byzantine eunuchs. We don't have any sort of reason to suppose that they felt like they lost something. I mean, we don't have any reason to suppose that they felt like they gained something either, but they were all very rich and they did, well, not all very rich, but many of them were very rich and very powerful and did hold a lot of sway and often lived much longer than their uncastrated fellows for various reasons. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, but I think that's the challenge of the historian is to sort of like make a topic that at first seems so repellent to us today, something that's much richer and not just this, ew, gross, I don't like that. Um, because one of the reasons that my, <laughs> my job is very challenging is that a lot of early historians just kind of ignored the fact that there were eunuchs or sort of saw it as a sign of the depravity of the Byzantine Empire, which is not really fair or helpful for understanding anything that happened. This is such a specific topic, and I know when you're doing a PhD, you pick a specific topic, but how did you land on this one? Oh gosh. Um, I'm really interested in sort of in-between things. So eunuchs themselves sort of act as mediators and also get sort of described as sort of not man, not woman. They're sort of like in between. And this connection with angels also sort of like makes them a little bit otherworldly, sort of like in between heaven and, and earth being. And so I think I was interested in that topic and how you visualize that and then also how you are able to talk about that. It's quite the challenge and maybe it's not making my writing easier. Um, <laughs> I don't know why we do these things. So yeah, I think I was just interested in the general sort of like things that are difficult to visualize and then things that are sort of like in between marginal, by which I mean sort of on the edge, not mm -hmm. like marginal to society. Right. Um, and then like, like, like transitional. Yeah, liminal, like transitional figures. Um, and what we do with those as art historians, because art obviously is more interested in sort of thing in the center, usually. Mm -hmm. So like the emperor, for example. But there's a lot of stuff going on around the emperor that's making that happen. Uh, so I, was think, I think I was more interested in looking at the edges where there are eunuchs. And then also, once you sort of start looking for eunuchs, you're like, oh, is that beardless figure? Is that it? What is it? Who? So you get sort of invested in pondering whether a figure is or is not mm. castrated and what, what that means. Yeah, that's interesting because I think it is easy to look at everything and just sort of see it through your own lens, see it through our society today and not think about what they were living through. Imagine what this situation, what we're in right now, would have been like even, even 10 years ago, much less yeah, I, 100 years ago. I honestly don't know what I would be doing. 
Oh, it'd be crazy. I would be really, really crazy. You're a doctoral candidate now at Stanford, which in itself is impressive, but you went to OSU before. How did OSU help prepare you for that? I love answering this question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was lucky enough to be in a relatively small department. I was one of like maybe five art history majors when I was there. There were not very many of us. And so I got all of the attention from Jennifer and Louise and it was fantastic. I also did honors college, which I think was really helpful, just having sort of like smaller class sizes where you are, which I think was really helpful for just preparing me for like graduate work in general, just like having small class sizes and be willing to talk about random ideas. But also the art history teachers in particular at OSU, um, particularly Dr. Borland and Dr. Siddons were the most helpful and they were supportive when I was there. They let me do basically whatever I wanted as far as sort of like extra projects. Dr. Siddons and I worked on the, the museum didn't exist yet when I was there, but we were working on sort of like what the collection actually was and sort of what to do with that, which was very helpful as a young art historian. Jennifer has been so helpful and supportive and like helped me do my grad school applications and then actually like told me where I should do my master's and sort of like why and they've both you know guided me along ever since I was at OSU um and now it's really fun because I go to sort of like the same conferences that they do and especially Jennifer because we have the same field I get to sort of see them all the time and it's super helpful. I mean, I did also learn a lot about art history while I was there, but I think honestly, just the sort of community that I built has been sort of the best and most helpful and most preparatory part. Because also, once you get into grad school in a sort of field like art history, it's important to be able to sort of talk to people, like lots of different people, especially your professors, in a way that's not as an undergrad student, you know, it's, it's important to be able to share ideas that are sort of bigger and larger and to not be like, oh, hello, doctor, I have like a question about the date of such and such painting, like, who cares? And Jennifer and Louise are both Stanford alumni. They are. I, I ended up at Stanford for different reasons because I, I wanted to work with my advisor, but it's been really helpful to, have them also be alums. So when I got into Stanford and was going to go there like the next year, they sent this adorable email to the department, to like the Stanford department, <laughs> because they still know people there, obviously, as sort of like an introduction, which I I didn't know about until like months and months later. And it was mm. great. That's nice. It was uh so nice. I'd like to thank Laura for joining me for this episode. If you have any feedback, you can reach us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Now, to wrap things up, our final question. How do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? I would say, especially in the time of COVID, the importance of the arts and sciences is 
obvious. We have scientists working on cures and vaccines and figuring out how to sort of stay safe from this thing or how to get rid of it. And that's very important. But also, if we didn't have art, um, we would all be doing nothing in our homes. Thank you to literature and to all the people who make movies and TV shows. What else would we be doing? Like you and I were just saying, if we had to go through this 10 years ago, 100 years ago, good Lord. Um, and now we have tons of access. <laughs> sense of access to all of the different artistic creations. But beyond the times of COVID, I would say specifically for art history, the way that it makes the world a better place, even if you don't become an art historian, I mean, I'm asking very different questions, but just very broadly, the practice of art history is helpful for making the world a better place and important because the number one thing that you have to do as an art historian is to literally look at things like other people would. Either look at a painting, that is another person's viewpoint, look at a sculpture, that's a certain person's viewpoint. But also, if you're trying to understand the culture or the place or the time that made it, you have to sort of put yourself into a different perspective. And that is really valuable just for making a more empathetic, sympathetic human being. Mm -hmm.